Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of FW Presents, the Anything Goes anthology show of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Ryan Daly, but this is not my show. All I'm doing is this quick introduction to give you some context for what you're about to hear. This week, we celebrated the 10th anniversary of Fire and Water Podcasts. Even if you haven't been listening to the show all that time, or the greater network that spun out of it, you probably remember that our friend, Zoom Yukonori, was one of the most talented and creative people, certainly in our community, if not the whole world. The podcasts that he created for our network before his very sad and all-too-early death are some of the best content we have ever produced. And being the type of person that he was, knowing the end was coming, he recorded a whole lot of material to be edited and released posthumously. For real, like, you thought Tupac released a lot of albums after? I mean, I wanted to change Zoom's name to Zoompac on the website, but the guys outvoted me. Probably for the best. Some of the extra material that Zoom recorded included the final episodes of Done in One Wonders and Zoom for Sam, which you've probably already heard. If you haven't, go check them out. But he also recorded a bunch of dramatic readings of DC prose stories from various annuals and other sources. Stories of Batman, Superman, Plastic Man, as well as Aquaman and Firestorm. These recordings have been or are currently being edited and turned into shows by Zoom's son Isamu and his friend Adrian Zett. They both deserve a huge shout-out for the work that they continue to do on these recordings. And... As these shows become available to us, we will release them at the time or on the feed that we think works best, depending on the subject matter. For now, though, as I needed to take a break from Cheerscast, we are proud to present this Batman story that we have been sitting on for quite a while now. This is a story called The Gun, written by Alan Moore and originally published in Batman, the official 1985 annual in the UK. Please enjoy this dramatic reading of The Gun by Zoom Yukonori with technical assistance by Isamu Yukonori and Adrian Zett. If you want to read along with this story or look at the accompanying art pieces, check out the gallery post that goes with this episode on the FW Presents show page of the Fire and Water Network website. Alright, I've already been talking way too much. Now, your feature presentation. The Gun by Alan Moore Originally published in the official Batman Annual 1985 Published by London Editions Magazines Read by Zoom Yukonori Johnny Speculux wasn't his real name. Johnny Speculux was just the name that he sprayed on the sides of subway cars in his unique dayglow scrawl. Fourteen letters to finish before the subway trains started to move again, sometimes taking the skin off his elbow as he tried to finish the last letters. 
he had taken the name from one of the yellowing old sci-fi magazines that his kid brother was always reading. Johnny Speculux. It sounded good. And in orange fluorescent spray paint in enormous letters, it looked positively spectacular. Johnny Speculux liked things to be spectacular, but he never seemed to have the money to make them that way. So to make up for that, he liked to hang around in spectacular places. The Home 2000 exhibition at the Gotham City Fair was, in Johnny's eyes, the very last word in eye-boggling display. To his left stood a gigantic thermos flask, fully 70 feet tall. To his right stood a massive chromium washing machine the size of a house. Everything was bright and colossal and gleaming, with brilliant colored spotlights playing over the exhibits and the thronging crowds. Happy families moved in streams around the exhibits like shoals of neon-lit tropical fish swimming in an ocean of piped muzak. Johnny Speculux moved among them like an invisible shark. He felt scared and excited. He felt capable of doing absolutely anything he wanted. And in the pocket of his anorak, cold, old, and heavy, was the gun. He had never had a gun before. It did not have a name or make, it was just the gun. It had been hand-built in 1950 by a sad old gunsmith named Lou Hirsch, and it had been built for a very special purpose. Hirsch's wife, Anna, had been shot in a raid on his gun store, and the hard features of the Italian mobster who had killed her were emblazoned on Lou's memory. Wanted posters with the face of Tony Pavrotti had gone up all over Gotham City, but to no avail. Lou Hirsch would sit up late into the night, day after day as the gun took shape in the weak light of his basement workshop. Thoughts of revenge occupied every moment of the old craftsman's waking hours. Perhaps, one day, Destiny would bring him face to face with the man who had taken his wife from him. Perhaps one day, he would be in the street, or in a bar maybe, and he would glance up and recognize the man across the way as Pavrotti. And, if that should ever happen, Lou Hirsch was going to be ready. He finished building the gun in the autumn of 1950. In the summer of 52, he read in the paper that a man killed in a road accident in northern Italy had been positively identified as the fugitive from justice, Tony Pavrotti. The paper went on to say that his wife and two sons were going to America in the hope of starting a new life. For Lou Hirsch, it was too late to start again. Vengeful thoughts had fueled his flickering life force for too long. 
Now Pavrodi was dead, and the carefully crafted gun became just so many bits of metal to Hirsch. But its chambers were heavy with a terrible, unrequited vengeance. In 1953, Hirsch gave the gun to his brother-in-law, Julius Lippmann, in payment for an outstanding debt. Lippmann sold the gun to a card-sharp acquaintance, a man called Vinny Torino, who lost it to an associate in a poker game. The name of that associate was Joe Chill. Joe had been angry on the night that he won the gun. But instead of his anger fading away as it usually did when he won a game, it seemed to stay with him. In fact, he seemed to get angrier. If Joe Chill had been born just a little bit brighter and just a few years later, he might have been able to channel that burning anger in politics. He might have grown into one of those slender, wild-eyed men with beards who rant about social justice. As it was, Joe couldn't care less about social justice. The one thing he cared about was the fact that he never seemed to have any money. And that meant that people who did have money were the enemy. This is what Joe was thinking the night he won the gun. He was thinking pretty much the same thing one hour later, as four bullets flew from the gun into Dr. Thomas Wayne and his wife Martha, as they walked home from the theater with Bruce, their six-year-old son. Later, Chill had felt bad about the kid being there, but had decided that he really couldn't be held responsible for what became of the boy. After all, Joe hadn't meant to kill the rich guy and his snooty wife. All he wanted was the woman's purse. If her husband hadn't suddenly decided to start playing at Heroes, they'd both still be alive. It was as simple as that. A real accident. All the same, Joe would never forget the look in that child's eyes. It was as if something in the boy's mind had just curled up and gone to sleep forever while something else was awakening for the first time. Something dark and cold and remorseless. Almost 20 years later, Joe Chill was to see those eyes again, just once before he died. The eyes were staring at him through a blue mask. The eyes of the Batman were the last thing he ever saw. Of course, Joe Chill no longer owned the gun. He'd sold it years before to pay the rent. Since then, it had passed aimlessly from person to person, through pockets, pawn shops, and police lockers, until it reached Johnny Speculux. Johnny Speculux walked on down the hall and his anorak hung heavier on one side than it did on the other. He passed between a huge sewing machine and a towering fiberglass replica of the His Master's Voice emblem, 
noticing that the crowd seemed much thinner here. In fact, he could only see one couple. They were emerging from a low structure shaped like a flat iron, which appeared to be the public restroom. Behind them, they dragged a tired and reluctant girl of about four years old. Johnny Speculux's heart began to hammer as he walked towards them. His dry lips stuck together, gluing his smile in place. Far above, the sad eyes of a 50-foot dog gazed mournfully into the horn of a 50-foot phonograph. The vast mausoleum-like silence that followed the echo of the gunshots was only relieved by the wail of the child. A crowd had gathered, and a sturdy-looking matron in a blue twin set was attempting to stand between the shrieking child and the motionless bodies of her parents. A 13-year-old boy touched the woman's body lightly with his toe, just for a dare. A woman who looked uncannily like Elizabeth Taylor stood eating popcorn as she stared at the bodies, talking to her neighbor in the huddled group as she did so. Aw, will you look at that? The poor little kid. What kind of creep does that? You know what I think? Jail's too good for him. That's what I think. The shadow was long and cold, and when it fell upon the crowd, they grew silent. The Liz Taylor lookalike inhaled some popcorn and almost choked. Everyone stepped aside to let him walk through, cloak rustling as its scalloped tips brushed the gleaming tiled floor behind him. He walked slowly and silently across to the bodies and stared down at them. He did not speak. Then he walked across to where the little girl stood and the lady in the twinset gasped and took a step backwards. He knelt. He stared into the child's glazed eyes. Who did this? said the Batman gently. Johnny Speculux walked on down the hall, only he walked a little faster conscious all the while of the weight in his pocket as it bumped rhythmically against his thigh. The gentle slap of gunmetal echoed the haunting, sing-song refrain that circled around his buzzing head. Fifteen dollars and forty-two cents. Fifteen dollars and forty-two cents. Fifteen dollars and... That was all the cash that the couple had been carrying. $15.42. He didn't feel good anymore. He didn't feel like a shark, and he certainly didn't feel invisible. Everyone was looking at him. He'd catch their eye for a second before they glanced away, hostile and suspicious. He had to get away from all these people. He took the elevator that ran all the way up the center of a giant cake stand and made his way to the restaurant perched atop the uppermost tier. He ordered a jumbo-sized beaker of coffee and a giant apple strudel with two helpings of cream. 
and it came to $2.90. He took a table by the window where he could look down upon the crowds that surged through the massive exhibition hall. They flowed together like colored electrical currents, red interweaving with blue, spotted with yellow. He remembered his apple strudel and forced himself to eat. Halfway through the eleventh mouthful, he sensed that someone was watching him. His eyes darted to the main body of the restaurant, but nobody seemed to be looking in his direction. Just then, someone tapped on the other side of the window, eighty feet up. Johnny Speculux turned. Slow and heavy glaciers of fear started to move down his back. There was someone squatting on the three-inch-wide window ledge that ran around the top tier of the enormous cake stand. He was dressed in shifting darkness, black and gray and blue, crouched like a gargoyle with the long cloak flapping behind him, hardly like a man at all. He was staring at Johnny Speculux, and there was something familiar in his eyes. They had something in them very much akin to what had been in the little girl's eyes when Johnny Speculux had used the gun. They had all the seething, emotional intensity of a child's eyes, but they were set into an adult's face and the effect was terrifying. Johnny Speculux screamed and leapt to his feet, upsetting the table. It seemed to topple in slow motion, jumbo-sized beaker of coffee poised forever in mid-air. Everyone in the restaurant began to shout at once, but by then Johnny Speculux was running up the fire escape that connected the top tier of the cake stand with the roof of the exhibition center itself, running like a bat out of hell. When he reached the door at the top of the stairs, the cold, thin rooftop air hit like a freight train, slamming the adrenaline out of his body. His mind, however, was still dancing. The Batman was after him. The Batman. After him. But why? He wasn't somebody really dangerous. Not like the Joker or one of those people. People like that would wipe out Gotham, America, even the world if they happened to get their breakfast toast served up in the wrong shade of beige. He was just Johnny Speculux, and all he'd ever done was to snuff a couple of people, more by accident than design. That wasn't so awful, was it? A metallic whistling cut through the night air like a razor, and something wrapped itself around the support strut of the roof's water tower, dragging a near-invisible line behind it. The line went taut, and something dark and large and fluttering flowed up onto the roof. Johnny Speculux was running. At the far edge of the roof, a window cleaner's platform was suspended, strung between the ropes that would carry it down to the street. His heartbeats came like hammer blows upon a white-hot anvil as he scrambled over the side of the building and onto the lurching platform that waited a couple of feet below the edge. 
panic speeded his movements into a frantic blur. The Batman was up on the roof with him, somewhere behind him, somewhere in the shadows. As he winched out the rope and the platform started to descend in painfully short jerks, Johnny Speculux closed his cold, wet fingers around the weight in his jacket pocket. Above him, the moon stared down, an unfeeling cyclops. And then, suddenly, the moon wasn't there anymore. It had been eclipsed. Johnny Speculux could hear someone in the distance crying out in a voice that sounded very like his own. He fired once at the flapping chaos of shadows that perched on the rooftop's edge. There was no reaction. The billowing of the cape made it almost impossible to tell whether bullets were connecting with flesh or with fabric. He fired again. The bullets severed the rope of the platform. The platform tipped. Johnny Speculux and the gun fell 23 stories. The gun became a flattened blob of metal upon impact with the pavement. He was identified by his dental records. His name was Gianni Carlosa Pavroti. He was 18 years old and he came from an Italian family that had arrived in America in the early 1950s. Johnny Speculux wasn't his real name. And a whole lot of revenge had gone into the making of that gun. <laughs> 